According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. This morning we are in the book of Hebrews, and we are straddling chapter 7 and 8 this morning. Hebrews 7 and 8. This may be one of those where we uh, use about half and half of our time, and so the MP3 gets tagged for both chapters, actually. It gets tagged for chapter 7 and it gets tagged for chapter 8. Reading in verse 26 through 28 of chapter 7, it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And we really have a, a theme here that gets uh, straddles the chapters, if you will. It's an unfortunate chapter division, actually, because we have such a high priest in 26, and then we have such a high priest in verse 1 of chapter 8. The main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. And uh, the Savior that we have and His role as our high priest is just amazing to behold. So this is what we're going to be dealing with here this morning. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment to acknowledge our dependency upon Him. We must be in fellowship. We must be humble to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you with joy and rejoicing. We are unworthy, Father. None of us deserves to be here. Who are we that we should be brought into your presence? That Who are we that you should explain yourself or impart your wisdom? And yet, Father, in Christ, you have revealed yourself. Father, you have given us your truth. You lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. We call upon your faithfulness now this hour. We ask that you would set aside distractions, that you would humble us, that you would, that you would bless the teaching of your word, Open our eyes to see the true object of our faith. Thank you, Father, for the celebrity of the universe, your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Really, when it comes right down to it, the celebration of Christ is what the book of Hebrews is centered on. We have chapter after chapter after chapter showing why He's the celebrity, why He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the Old Testament, greater than anything that's ever come. He is the pinnacle of God's revelation. And so we've been seeing this chapter by chapter by chapter. If you ever get lost, uh, I think the author of Hebrews does a big favor here when he starts off chapter 8 saying, now the main point is this, <laughs> okay? Don't overlook this. If you miss this, you miss the point of Hebrews, is that we have a great high priest and we have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And uh, the, the such a high priest that we have encompasses the fivefold description from verse 26, that he is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And so are we in our priesthood. When we function in our priesthood, this is us as well, separated from sinners. Now we're not talking about our ambassadorship function, that's different. When we're witnessing and when we're uh, fulfilling our ambassador role, we are not separated from sinners. We're right down here on earth and in, in thick in the midst of it, and we're, we're given the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That's our ambassador function. Sometimes it's also our soldier function when we struggle, uh, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the principalities and powers. So really those are the three main sweeping realms for Christian service in the church age, our priestly service, our ambassador service, and our soldier service that we call the, the functions of the church age. Well, our priestly function is what's highlighted in the book of Hebrews, and it starts here uh, in this fivefold description. Holy, we are to be holy as He is holy. Innocent, we are to be blameless. Children of light, walking in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Undefiled, we keep ourselves unstained, keep ourselves from idolatry. Uh, separated from sinners, that's, that's critical, because friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Our, our priesthood is thrown out the window if, uh, if we're going to run in carnality with the crowd we used to run with before we got saved. And then exalted in the heavens above. That's our role, seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's a priestly role, seated at the right hand of God the Father. We enter within the veil, which we'll see coming up in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so this is what we're centered on here. Picking up from, uh, from last week then, I guess I'll just skip ahead to our slide here. This fivefold sanctification reality. It's our fivefold mandate. 
And uh, I won't repeat all this, but uh, if you want the MP3, it's just sitting there on the website, minding its own MP3 business. And uh, it's been sitting there since the day we posted it. Everything we teach, we get, <laughs> we get recorded, we get posted, and it sits there. And uh, so if there's anything you thought you heard that was uh, problematic, let me know. Shoot me an email and say, this MP3 and this minute marker, this you know, minute and second marker, and I'll listen to anything. That, uh, that that we say here, because it's uh, before God and men alike that we speak the truth in love. All right. So because Jesus is holy, we can lift up holy hands in prayer. Because Jesus is innocent, we can serve Him with a clear conscience. Because Jesus is undefiled, we can serve others in such a way. Because Jesus is separated from sinners, our priestly service must also be separated from sinners. Because Jesus is exalted above the heavens, we too are seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is a description of his priesthood. It's a description of our priesthood. Remember, he is the apostle and high priest of, not himself, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. We join him in this priesthood. He's not alone in this priesthood. He entered within the veil. He entered as a forerunner. A forerunner is not alone. He's, well, he's alone when he gets there, but he's going to be followed by everyone that follows the forerunner. That's the point of having a forerunner. You have afterrunners that are following you behind the, uh, within the veil and functioning in this beautiful priesthood that we have, this Melchizedek priesthood that is the body of Christ. Remember, Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. That is so profound and so simple. You can uh, explain that in just seconds, but it's so true. Israel had a priesthood. It was the tribe of Levi. It was one tribe set apart. But we are a priesthood. That is the body of Christ, every believer in this church age. These things become significant. Our priesthood does not require annual atonement offerings or daily sin offerings. Our priesthood does not require annual atonement offerings or daily sin offerings. In the Old Testament, they had this. Every evening, every morning, they had a sin offering. Every, the fire was never to go out on the altar. Aaron had to offer up a sin offering every evening and a sin offering every morning. And then annually came the Day of Atonement, once a year, every year. And what you had there was the constant, nonstop reminders of sin. That is completely inappropriate for the church age, completely inappropriate for you and I, whereby the sin is removed, the sin is taken away, the sin is sealed up in a bag and cast behind his back as far as the east is from the west, plunged into the depths of the sea. We don't have the daily reminders of our sin because the Father doesn't want to remember it ever again. The Father judged it on Jesus Christ, and when Jesus comes back in his second advent, it will not be with reference to sin. That was accomplished in his first advent. And so we do not require these annual offerings. And it says here in verse 27, the high priest that we have. It says, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people? That's no longer a function. Because first of all, guess what? He's sinless. But then guess what else? Secondly, we are too. Positionally, we are sinless. Positionally, we are made perfect. Positionally, we are righteous in Christ. Of course, we still commit personal sins, and that's, a, that's going to be a, a, a reality while we're in these fallen bodies. But positionally, we are a holy priesthood even as He is holy. So He does not need to offer up sins, sacrifices, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. Neither one is necessary because both are finished at the cross. Because this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. Now that closes chapter 7 and then prepares to launch us now into chapter 8, 9, and 10, where we see that it's not only the son made perfect forever, but through him we are made perfect forever. Now what Jesus Christ did on the cross was what the law could never do. The law could never make worshipers perfect, but grace does. The grace and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross makes us perfect in our conscience before Him. And we'll see that here. And so um, the way I phrased it after those verses, um, and, and really it comes down to, let me, let me pick up on this and then we'll, we'll build it. But First John 1, verse 9 is our confession verse. Verse 7 is our don't need to confess verse. 
because we stay in fellowship and we don't commit the sin. If we do commit the sin, then well, then we've got a remedial action we've got to take. But it's better if you don't commit the sin. If you face the temptation and say no, you face the temptation and then embrace your priesthood in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And that's the, the reality of what we have. So let me just turn there real quickly. First John 1, because this is the fellowship we have with the Father and with the Son. And it says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. This is our walk in fellowship, our walk in the light, being led by the Holy Spirit. We studied that in Galatians 5. When you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. No believer can ever sin under the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? That's the provision. Okay, you say, well, why do I sin all the time? Because you stop walking by the Spirit. You stop employing the Holy Spirit's empowerment. The minute you quench that, of course you're going to commit a sin. It's already a given. You've already surrendered the power that keeps you from doing it. So if he, we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's a continuous operation. We are continuously cleansed. That's why we don't need to have a Levitical evening and morning sin offering because we are eternally cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, if we do happen to sin, verse 9 then is our remedial action. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, we don't need to bring a goat or any other animal. Nothing else has to die. There's no additional sin offerings or sacrifices. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Not in the church age. It's taken away by the Lamb of God. And so he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. God can't bear a grudge. Why would he? That thing was already condemned on the cross. And so now that you've confessed it, great, we're back in fellowship and we move forward in the plan of God. And so... This is what we're dealing with here. Now, it's given priestly terminology in uh, Hebrews. Uh, some folks might not see the, the priestly terminology in 1 John. I think it's there. But the fellowship emphasis is so strong that sometimes folks miss the priestly emphasis that's in 1 John. But the priestly emphasis is undeniable in the book of Hebrews. And so let me just tease you with some of these things. Like in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, we'll give you much more detail when we actually get to chapter 9. But we have uh, 10 verses of, of tabernacle operations and then the contrast in Hebrews 9.11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, critical, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. We'll have an application of this very early in chapter 8 as well, verses 1 and 2 that address this, okay? That the earthly tabernacle was just a replica it was a facsimile. It was ba- it was, Moses built it based upon the blueprints, the pattern of what he saw in the heavenly places. And so the tabernacle is just an earthly replica. And he didn't go in there. Isn't that beautiful? He hung on the cross. He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Then the veil of the t- earthly temple was rent in two. And did he go in there? No, of course not. Had no business in there. No need to go in there. Demonstrating that that is done, fulfilled in Christ. He went to the heavenlies. And that's what we see here. So he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know, to use a substitute, to use an animal ritual in place of yourself, that's fine for a shadow, that's fine for an anticipation, but the substance is Christ. There was no... uh, there was no ram caught in the thicket that could rescue Jesus as, uh, as Isaac was rescued, right? We understand that parallel. Uh, for, for Abraham, he was spared in giving Isaac because there was a ram caught in the thicket. And so there was uh, the Lord will provide and a substitute took Isaac's place. And there was no ram will provide. There was no uh, substitute for Jesus' place. He either did it, he either went to the cross or no one goes to the cross. And we understand that. Once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more? Notice cleansing from the flesh. We have the shadows and the the physical examples of the Old Testament, but ours is internal. Ours is reality. How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's a completed act. That's our perfection. That's what the law could never do, but Jesus did. And so we have the description here. Same chapter down to verse 24. Christ uh, did not enter a holy place made with hands. See, that's just a copy, a replica, like verse 23 talks about the copy and the replica. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's why he ascended. That's why he went to cleanse the heavenly temple. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. And every year, here we go again, every year, here we go again, every September, October time frame in the fall. That's the, the Jewish calendar for the Day of Atonement. And uh, every year they get another reminder that they are, uh, they are God's chosen people, but they're sinners. And they have to have that Day of Atonement to cleanse them for another year of service. Not so with us. Jesus does not go to the cross a second time, a third time, or year after year. He went once, once and for all, is the provision. So it says in verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages. What a, what a term. What a term, the climax of the universe. It's right there, the consummation of the ages and the plan of God. That was it. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, three hours of darkness on the cross in Jerusalem. The consummation of the ages has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, study the, the doctrine of atonement, and you'll learn that kafar, the verb to atone, just means to cover. It doesn't mean remove. It just covers the sin so that he can pass over. It's covered and he passes over. Jesus Christ doesn't just cover the sin, he removes the sin. He pays the penalty for the sin. It's gone. It's off the ledger. It's, it's out of the picture. And so uh, he puts away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a beautiful provision. And so inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Second advent, no reference to sin. He dealt with that at first advent. And this is our provision. This is our, our, our salvation in Christ. Because if you try to earn your own way to heaven, forget about it. You're a sinner. You don't deserve it. You deserve the lake of fire. But if you accept his gift, you accept what he did on the cross on your behalf, then sin is out of the picture. It's removed. And God the Father appoints Jesus' righteousness to your account. That's what we call salvation. That's what we call getting saved, accepting the offer of eternal life. We have uh, God's faithfulness to thank for that. Over to chapter 10. Verse 10, verse 19, verse 22. Again and again, we have the contrast here. 10.10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been sanctified. That's why we don't need morning by evening by morning sin offerings. That's why we don't need annual day of atonements. Because by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is a completed act. For me, it was September of 1973. And uh, my mother sat me down at the table and, and told me that uh, if I had Christ, I had eternal life. If I don't have Christ, I'm going to hell. And uh, I was a four-year-old, almost five, and I knew I was a sinner. That was obvious. And so I realized as a sinner, um, I had a problem. And then it was uh, good news that that problem had been provided for, had been taken care of. And uh, as simple as that. Verse 19 Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now remember in the Old Testament, it was one guy one day a year. And it was blood not his own. There were sacrifices that had to be made before he even went in there. With you and me today, guess what? We don't have to kill anything. Nothing else has to die. and there No more blood has to be shed. You and I right here, right now, enter within the veil. And in the Old Testament, he went in there by himself. In the New Testament, we're all in there with Christ. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And so this is our provision. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
We don't stay at the bottom of the mountain and say, well, you go up there and, and talk to God for us and then come back and tell us what he had to say. That's what Israel did when they were at the bottom of that mountain terrified. They sent Moses up there and said, come back and tell us what God had to say. We go within the veil. We follow our forerunner. We follow Jesus. We stand before God the Father. And we have a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the reality of the cleansing we receive at the moment of our salvation. And so because you and I are New Testament believer priests, we are members of the body of Christ and that that gives us this full adult standing before our Father. We enter within the veil, we stand before our Father. And uh, we do this all day, every day. This is our grace provision. Well, shadow anticipation of the cross required continuous reminders. We don't have that. We don't need the continuous reminders because we don't function in the shadow anticipation of the cross. We function in the substantive expression of the cross. You see the difference? It's not a shadow anticipation. It is a substance expression. You and I function in the substantive or the substance expression of the cross. And so we have no such need of those daily reminders of sin. We're walking in the newness of life. We have died to sin and we now live to God in Christ Jesus. The blessings we have as church age saints. Which gets us to the end of the chapter and gets us to verse 28. The idea of perfection. And as we've discussed this in previous chapters, it should be pretty quick and easy today, but let's talk about it. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, remember, I have sworn you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The oath that he spoke in Psalm 110, verse 4. The word of the oath, which came after the law. David was 400 years after Moses. Psalm 110 was 400 years after the Pentateuch. The word of the oath came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Jesus Christ, having been perfected, is now suited to be the high priest. The high priest like no other high priest. And it's that perfection that we recognize. Jesus Christ was perfected and abides forever as our perfect high priest. Jesus Christ was perfected. And I'll just remind you a little bit in case uh, you weren't here or, or um, you were here but you were daydreaming. All right. This is a concept that bothers some believers, uh, honestly. Because Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is... Why, why would he need to be perfected if he's already perfect? Okay? And, and believe me, I get that. I, I follow that. I, I appreciate that. That bothered me for a long, long time as well. And, until you start to study, you start to realize, well, being perfected is a different process than being sinless or, or innocent or without spot or blemish. I think we use, we use the adjective perfect too loosely. Uh, that is, because things can be flawless. They can be perfect for one thing and useless for something else. To be perfected means that you are being suited, which is what we have here for uh, such a high priest, suitable, fitting, right? It is fitting for us. So think about uh, in, uh, the tools in your toolbox. Some of you have tools, right? In a toolbox somewhere? Okay. I don't, but my wife does, so I, I know the concept. And there are tools that are perfect for one application, but they're utterly useless or less than perfect or, or terrible. If you're trying to pound nails with a screwdriver, you, you'd actually do better pounding nails with, with a hammer, right? I mean, I get that. Or, um, you know, if you're turning screws, you know, there's tools that are suited for certain things, and they're not suited for other things. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm not going to chop down a tree with my Swiss army knife, okay? There's better tools for that. So understand that Jesus is perfect, but he still must be perfected for his role as the apostle and high priest of our confession. He has to be perfected to be the intercessor at the Father's right hand. Until his first advent incarnation, until he walks our walk and suffers our sufferings, he's not yet been perfected to be our intercessor. 
perfected to be our advocate the way that he's perfected now. And that makes a big difference. Same thing with us and and our perfection as God perfects us through our sufferings as well. And so we've seen this already. We saw this in chapter 2. We saw this in chapter 5. By the time you get it the third time in chapter 7, it should be um, it should be reinforced, you know, enforced and reinforced and re-reinforced. Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for him. There's that word again, fitting, proper, appropriate, suitable. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And we discussed it in chapter 2. We discussed how deep that is. And the Lord keeps bringing it back up again and again and again, the perfecting of our Savior. And without it, if He doesn't come, if the Word doesn't become flesh, if God the Son just stays in heaven as God the Son in the form of God, remember we studied this. This was Philippians, the kenosis. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking the form of, a, of, of man, being found in the likeness of fallen man. That's the kenosis. If he does not do that, he can't be the apostle and high priest of our confession because it's fitting, proper, suiting. It suits him for this function. In bringing many sons to glory. And so the father would have one beloved son for all eternity, but now he has many sons in glory. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brethren because it was fitting for our Savior to suffer as He did. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. So because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He identified with us, He became our substitute, He took our place freely, bringing us now to the Father. Without it, we're not there. Fitting, okay? Being perfected. Chapter 5 as well. Chapter 5 and verse 9. Well, let's see here. Back up to verse 7. 5, 7 says, In the days of His flesh, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. For all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been in perfect fellowship. But then comes the days of His flesh. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, when God the Son was born of a virgin, and Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary, He entered into this world in the flesh. He offered up both prayers and supplications. Why? I mean, if you're God, just do what you want to do. But he came to identify with us. And so identifying with us means he didn't exercise his divine prerogatives. He never once used deity. He functioned totally like you and I do. That is, dependent upon God in prayer. So he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And you might remember this when we were in chapter 5. Able to save him from death, but choosing not to. Choosing not to. The Father could have spared him from the cross. He was able to. But the consequences are not saving any of us. The consequences are not bringing the many sons to glory. Jesus prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass by me. It's possible, but it's not the plan of God. The plan of God is for the cup not to pass by. The the plan of God is for Jesus to drink the cup, to lay down his life for our eternal life. And so, although he was a son, so the one able to save him from death, he was heard because of his piety. He was heard. When God answers no, that doesn't mean he didn't hear you. It means he heard you and he answered no. You're going to the cross. That's what he told Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, sir, I'm going to the cross. He had his victory in, Golgotha, in, in Gethsemane so he could then have his victory at Golgotha. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect. So learning obedience through suffering is what made him perfect. What do you think makes you perfect? What do you think? Yeah, there we go. You and me. So, well, I don't like suffering. Well, no, neither do I. Who does? It's not a masochistic thing, but it's for the glory of Jesus Christ. Say, thank you, Lord, that I'm counted worthy to suffer. Because learning obedience through the things which we suffer makes us perfect. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Keep in mind, 
He became. The word became flesh, something it never was before. He became something he was not before, the source of eternal salvation. Without the cross, we're not saved. Without the cross, he's not suited to be our savior. How can he justify without, and we like being the justified, but in order to be the justified, he has to be the just justifier, which means he has to go to the cross. And so becoming something he never was before, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is why Melchizedek priesthood is so vital. Understanding this doctrine, it is essential to being saved. It is essential to our reality in the church age. The source of eternal salvation is his appointment as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's perfected. He abides forever as our perfect high priest. This is why we can't lose our salvation. We can't lose our salvation because he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. All right. The bride of Christ also. Just as Jesus in his first advent went through his perfecting, we in our earthly walk, we go through our perfecting. The bride of Christ is presently being perfected, also abiding forever in our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. We have our our perfecting right now in this life. We begin our priesthood in this life and we get to continue it in the next. We get to continue it forever. Hebrews 10, we were there a little bit ago, verse 1 and verse 14. Hebrews 10, 1. I did not read. Should have. It says, Hebrews 10, 1, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, not the very substance of things. This is the difference between shadow and substance. The law could never do what the cross was designed to do. All the law could do was point to the cross. Shadow is not substance. It could never ever, it says, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You can follow Mosaic law all your life and it doesn't produce righteousness. No one is justified by works of the law. I mean, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins? It seems if a day of atonement with an ironic priesthood could do it eternally, then it would do it once and be done. But it was done over and over and over again. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? What's wrong with goat blood? <laughs> Nothing. It's just a shadow. It's just a visual aid. It's, a, it's, it's designed to represent and to teach and to point forward There's nothing intrinsically valuable about goat blood or rams or any of that. It's a picture pointing ahead to the substance that belongs to Christ. Christ, once and for all, gave himself. And that's the infinite prize. The infinite prize. So, cleansed, and then verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So write your own name in there. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you placed your faith in Christ, you received eternal life, you are right there in verse 14, perfected forever by one offering. So we don't have to do it again and again and again and again. All right. As verse 18 says, there is no longer an offering for sin. We don't have evening and morning sin offerings in the church age. That's done with. That's done with. Okay. And so this crosses us into chapter 8. And now it gets very practical. Now it gets very, uh, if you have the foundation, then what follows is marvelous. What follows is a, is a thrill for believer priests of our stewardship to stand before the Father, to minister, to serve. And uh, we have three chapters now of our service. Three chapters describing our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. So the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. Not only is he one, he's ours. (laughs) Right? He's ours. We. 
And we've talked about this too. It's the us and the we and the language of the present that being written in the Greek canon, being applied to the whole church age. It's universal for the body of Christ. It's not simply, uh, and it's in difference, it's in, 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 uh, in contrast to what they had. Those priests, those guys, what they had in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation under law. They didn't have a high priest that passed through the heavens. We do. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Isn't that beautiful? We have a high priest. Those high priests entered within the veil one day a year and came back. We have a high priest who passed through the heavens and sat down. That's huge. He is seated in majesty, seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And we're right there with him. This is such a, such a glory. He is a minister, a server, a, a, uh, a priestly minister, a liturgical minister in the sanctuary, the real sanctuary, not the replica. The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Which the Lord pitched, not man. So uh, all the man-made things, <laughs> you know, as glorious as Herod's temple was, and all the work that Herod put into glorifying uh, Ezra's temple. So by the time Jesus and the disciples are walking around, it was an impressive structure. And the disciples were thrilled, you know. Same thing happens in our day and age when uh, Christians get all wrapped up around big fancy church buildings. And they really get, you know, totally uh, absorbed in earthly stuff. And uh, the disciples are pointing it all, all to Jesus. And he said, this is all getting torn down. <laughs> you know, an hour is coming. This is all being torn down. Not one stone will stand upon another because the reality is in heaven. And that's what he went to cleanse. That's what he went to as a forerunner for us. We function in the heavenly places, not in Jerusalem, not in Samaria, not anywhere, locality, certainly not Austin, Texas, I'll tell you that. We're not a holy of holies here, okay? We're a Sodom and Gomorrah here, I'll tell you, by the grace of God, here we are. But he went to heaven. So those high priests went within a veil in once a year and came back every time. Our Savior didn't go behind a veil. He passed through the heavens and he had his seat at the Father's right hand. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is our glory. What a, what a privilege. All right. So the, um, the summary of Hebrews 1 through 7 is this. We have such a high priest, such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, we have a high priest unlike any high priest Israel ever had. And then not to, no, not saying they were terrible. Aaron was all right, except for the golden calf thing, right? <laughs> Eliezer was okay. Um, you know, some of the other high priests eh, weren't so bad. Um, by the time you get to Jesus' time, though, a lot of the high priests are criminals and they're in cahoots with, uh, with the Romans and other, other things. Uh, yeah, the high priest that ordered Jesus' execution, I'm not going to sing his praises, okay? But the, uh, the other high priests, compared to Jesus, seated at the Father's right hand, passing through the heavens, what a contrast. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And he's not just up there doing nothing, he's actually on duty. He is a minister. He is a uh, liturgos, liturgical minister in the true tabernacle. I've got to give you some vocabulary this morning, and I've been avoiding this. Most of this hour has been my non-exegetical hour. You know, if you come at 9.30, you get the Hebrew and Greek and, the, and all the declensions. But I've been avoiding that. I, I couldn't help myself. I just, I just had to do it. The liturgos, the liturgical minister in the true tabernacle. So yes, he's seated, but he's still working. That's the point. He's not doing nothing. He's not, you know, not in the easy chair with his feet propped up and just hanging out doing nothing for the last 2,000 years. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He walks in the midst of every golden lampstand. He holds the stars in his right hand. He operates in every local church. 
and he ministers in the true tabernacle. He liturgically ministers in the true tabernacle. Though seated, he ministers. We read Hebrews 10 a little bit ago, same verses, 11 through 14. He ministers. What does it mean to minister? He ministers. So um, talking about the earthly guys in the replica, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Ministering. So that means you're doing something. That means you're operating as a priest. That means you're, you're ministering. Okay? And we struggle because we are a non-liturgical church tradition. There are liturgical church traditions, and maybe it's your background, maybe you came out of a, a Catholic church or Lutheran or one of the other more liturgical churches. And so in a liturgical church, those ministers visibly minister in a way that you watch what they're doing. Unless you're in an Orthodox church, and then you can't see what they're doing because they actually go behind a veil and they're hidden from the from the the laity, the people can't see what's happening behind that veil. Uh, but that's the Orthodox Church. The Catholic Church and more Western liturgical churches, they don't actually hide behind the veil. They do all their hocus-pocus out there in front, right? And so they do. And they, they, they lift things up. They set things back down. They chant in uh, Latin or whatever. They, uh, they wave. They do the sign of the cross. All that stuff they're doing what is that? Yeah, okay. That's, thank you. But that's also, we would call that the liturgy. And the verses they recite and the responsive readings that happen. Okay? They are ministering. And so that is, and only the ministers can minister. So if you don't have that right priesthood, you can't get up there and minister with them. You, you stay seated where you are out there. And because they're going to do that, that ministry and they have the, they have the right ordination. They have the right, you know, apostolic succession so that they can mystically, magically, they can turn bread and wine into the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right? And then what are they going to do? They're going to come back and they're going to minister it to you. The little people, the, the, the hoi polloi. Okay? This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and Jesus said he hates it when it comes down to that. Now, this is why we're a little bit um, unfamiliar, maybe, if you don't have a background. If your background, if you were saved in a doctrinal church and you grew up in a doctrinal church all your life and you've never really been exposed to a lot of this, then, uh, then a lot of this is going to be alien to you. And because it's alien to the New Testament, it defies the book of Hebrews. The main point in what has been said is this, <laughs> okay? Our high priest is in heaven. We don't serve shadows. We serve the substance. And we all are ministers. We all minister one to another. That's why Luther and Calvin and the, the Protestant Reformation was what it was because it was the, the recognition that it's a universal priesthood as the body of Christ. All right. So those guys are standing daily ministering, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And so he's seated, but he continues to minister, is what we see here. We have a high priest who ministers. Now, when we talk about the liturgos, it's the Strong's Concordance number is number 3011. 3011 is the noun liturgos. That's a servant of the liturgia, of the liturgy. There are two L families of terms. And we're not going to go real deep into this, but I just want to keep it simple. They're L words, okay? L words, and there's two of them. And if you think liturgy, or if you think Levitical, or you think loser, or whatever, I mean, just think L words that help you remember this liturgy. They are the liturgo family, which is what we have here. That includes a verb, liturgeo, a noun, liturgia, an, uh, an adjective, uh, liturgikos, um, sometimes a substantive noun. Liturgos is what we have here. And so that's the Strong's number 3008, 9, 10, and 11. They're right in a row in the Strong's Dictionary. And then we have the Latria family. Latria, L-A-T-R-I-A, L-A-T-R-E-I-A. 
I can't spell in any language. Latreia, Latruo. Latruo is the verb, okay? And Latreia is our term for worship. It's really the component of idolatry. When you are latreying, when you have a, a latre for, a, for an idol, that's idolatry, okay? So take the image out of it, take the ados out of it, and you have real worship. Idolatry minus the image is real worship. So idolatry is ados latria. We don't want to worship the idol, we want to worship God. We have a latreia for the one true God. And we latruo the one true God. These are the L words. And these words are translated to worship, to serve, to minister. Okay? To worship, to serve, to minister. And I give them to you simply to highlight that when these words are used, biblically when these words are used, these words are used for divine worship. They're used for the public service of the Word of God in a, in a cultic setting, in a religious setting in a church family setting, okay? Secular Greek would even use them in a public setting for public works, for public worship, for public holidays, or public service. We talk about today our elected officials, our public servants. And in secular Greek, they would have used latruo for that. They would have used uh, liturgos for that. Not so by the time we get to the New Testament era. Now, the reason why we highlight these for you is because in terms of serve or minister, serve or minister, these are not the normal terms we go to. These are not what we typically see. We typically see doulos or diakonos. We, sit, we usually have two D words for a serve or minister. We talk about serving one another. We talk about ministering to one another. How many times have we taught the, the spiritual gift, for example, of serve or minister? Or the role of deacons in an assembly. That's the role of the diakonos. And we have two D words that normally mean to serve. And we do. We serve one another. We serve one another as bond servants, that's the doulos, or as deacons, which is the diakonos. So really, I'm just kind of laying it out there saying if you want to chase this down, you're going to, uh, you're going to spend some time with a couple of D words in their families. You're going to spend a, couple of, uh, some, a lot of time with a couple of L words in their families. And the L words are the service that we offer to God. We are serving God. It is a priestly service to God. It is a liturgical service to God. And I want us to start thinking in these terms, that our Melchizedek priesthood is a liturgical service to God. And it's not earthly. It's not wearing a particular robe. You notice we're not color coordinated around here. I don't have the vestments for, because um, we're coming up on Advent, right? Or are we in Advent already? I lose track. We've got Advent coming up in a liturgical church where my robe and my stole, the, you know, the, the, the long scarf thingy that hangs over the shoulders, and then the uh, tablecloth and the banners, everything matches based on the liturgical season. Easter, Advent, Epiphany, all the different times of the year. All of this was invented by the early Roman church, the medieval Roman church, invented all of this because the New Testament didn't give us a Leviticus. (laughs) The New Testament gave us a Hebrews and they didn't like it. Hebrews says we're all priests in the reality of Christ in the heavenly places. And the Roman church says, oh, no, no, no. The priests have to control the people. So they created a calendar. They created an Advent season. They created all of the priesthood and laity distinctions. And it's heartbreaking. You know, it's, um, yeah, it is heartbreaking. The uh, verse 3 then. He is a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. This is the heavenly reality. And it's still there. It's been there the whole time. It got defiled when Satan defiled it. And uh, the earthly replica uh, Jesus had to cleanse that a couple of times and flipped over tables and did some stuff. But the heavenly reality, he cleansed once, once and for all, and he did so in the resurrection. He did so on, on that resurrection Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. And he went and he cleansed the heavenly reality. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, he still offers, and we offer. We have offerings today because 
Through Him, we're able to offer these things to the Father. This is our worship to the Father. This is our priesthood. And I want us to think in these terms. As we function in our priesthood, and I get the fact that we're all different. I get the fact that we have different lines of work and whatever. And we've got, you know, doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. And we've got all kinds of truck drivers. And, and I mean, we've got everything imagined. We've got nurses. I think we had seven nurses at one point. We have, uh, we've got all kinds of things. And whatever we do individually... Each one of us is a believer priest in the Holy of Holies standing before God the Father. And we have ministry service to do. We, sh- we all have liturgical service to do. And so if that image of the, uh, you know, the guy in the robes with the, uh, with, uh, you know, service that he's doing in front of everybody, think of that. But make it spiritual reality, not just shadows. Make it a spiritual reality in all that you do. And offer up these prayers as a sweet-smelling savor before the Father. That's what we do in our priesthood. And start thinking in those terms. Start thinking about functioning in the Holy of Holies, because that's where we are. And there's no... It's not... Um, <laughs> it's not the... Uh, we watch, we, our family tradition is to watch Luther on, on uh, October 31st. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. Ralph Fiennes is the star. and um, it's, 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 a, it's a marvelous presentation of Martin Luther and, his, and the Reformation. But when he did his first Mass, he was so nervous. He's this young priest. He's just new to the priesthood. And he's, he's getting to say his first Mass. His dad comes. His family comes. They're sitting out there. And he's so nervous about it. He's shaking. And the, 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 the wine spills. It's, it, 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 it's like what I would do if I was, I'd be shaking it. And, uh, and so the wine drips out of the chalice and it drips down onto the, the snow white tablecloth, right? The linens that are there on the, and, and everybody sees it. It's a huge scandal and he's devastated and, and his dad is crushed because his dad was trying to put him through law school and here he wanted to be a monk, wanted to be a priest. And so all the pressure of ruining the, the liturgy because he, he dropped a, spilled a couple of drops there on the, on the tablecloth was, was just crushing in the movie. So anyway, um, why was I saying that? Because our ministry, our ministry is not like that, all right? And it's not the pressure of a, of a ritual whereby we say the right words in the right way with the right incantation. That's like demonic spellcasting, isn't it? I mean, goodness, if we have an incantation, what are we like, sorcerers now? What is that? We go to the Father and we talk to Him as a Abba Father, as, as sons, as daughters, as, as believer priests in Christ. And we're not worried about if we say it in Latin or not or say it the right way or, or if, we, if we dribble the wine on the tablecloth. You know, we're worshiping in spirit and in truth and it's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. And so we function in the Holy of Holies and where He is because He functions in the Holy of Holies. And so Jesus presently ministers in the heavenly holy of holies. You know, I think that temple was out of business the whole time after Satan defiled it, Ezekiel 28. Satan defiled that temple. And I don't ever see a place anywhere in the Old Testament or New Testament where that temple was ever operational until now, until Jesus Christ went in there and cleansed it. So he presently ministers in the heavenly holy of holies. And he does so as the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that means he's not in there by himself. That means we're in there too. Hebrews 3.1, where he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So it is through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ that our priestly function ministers to God the Father. If you want to know the mechanics of how this happens, the Holy Spirit makes it happen. And it's through His empowerment, it's through Jesus Christ's headship that we have any kind of true worship before the Father. And so think about these things. The reality, not the replica. Okay? The reality. That earthly temple was just a facsimile. It was a replica. It's like the thing they built in Nashville, Tennessee for the Parthenon. Okay? You can go to Nashville, Tennessee and walk through the Parthenon. Not the real Parthenon. That's still destroyed in ruins in Athens. (laughs) But the replica they built... And they built it based on how it looked like before it was destroyed. So it's not in ruins. And the parts, if you're in Greece, that are not there anymore, they've recreated those. And uh, so you can walk through and it's 
you know, it's fun, it's impressive and whatever. And then like every other exhibit, there's a gift shop on your way out because they're going <laughs> to, you know, like Disneyland, they're going to get some more money from you on the way out the door. But that's just the replica. So too with, um, and to me, the whole idea, why liturgical churches are so sad, whether it's you know Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, whatever, uh, certainly Orthodox, because they're so saturated by the shadows, they think the shadows are the thing. And they're not. The shadows are done. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. The shadows are fulfilled in Christ. We are the age of substance. We are the age of reality. And we function in the heavenly places. As I say, your body isn't sitting here on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. But spiritually speaking, you and I are standing before God the Father right now in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. How do we do that? God the Holy Spirit. He empowers the whole thing. And here we are. Positionally, we're in Christ. So if He is standing before the Father, we're standing before the Father. Let me give you some things to chew on here in the time remaining. This is good. This is if it's communion Sunday, I sometimes have to cut short, but today we got a little bit more time. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 18. Understand that we have access through Him, that's through Christ. Through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus Christ, on the basis of His finished work, and in His headship as the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, we, New Testament believers, whether Jew or Gentile, we both, have that's Jew or Gentile, have access in one Spirit to the Father. And so it's the Holy Spirit and it's Jesus Christ that makes this possible. We have access to the Father. I go to the Father in prayer all the time. We should all be before the Father. We find grace to help in time of need, and that's all day, every day. We have need. Father, help. And it's through Christ and through the Holy Spirit that we have our access to the Father. And I don't need to ask Christ to ask the Father. And I don't need to ask Mary to ask Jesus to ask the Father. (laughs) How sad is that? Or some other saint. Because maybe I'm not worthy to ask Mary for anything. So now I've got to ask St. Jude to ask Mary to ask Jesus to ask the Father. Boy, this, this gets complicated. How about if I just go to the Father? Because Hebrews 2 says we go to the Father. We have access. We have confident access. Through Him we both have our access to, in one spirit to the Father. That's our priestly function. Over to chapter 5. Verse 18 is the Spirit. Verse 20 is, the, is Jesus Christ bringing us to the Father. Do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. In the filling of the Holy Spirit, we stand before the Father, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. This is our ministry. It's to the Lord. We're not putting on a performance for us. We're serving the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We stand before Him in the name of Jesus Christ. My own name doesn't cut it. (laughs) I don't end my prayers in Bob's name, amen. That, uh, those aren't the kind of prayers that will get you anything. But when you stand before the Father in Jesus' name, in the filling and power of God the Holy Spirit, He provides all things exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. 1 Peter 2.5 It's through Him. Remember, He is the chief cornerstone. We too are stones living stones. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So He's the conduit, but we're the ones offering. We have access through Him. He's not offering on our behalf. That's what He did at the cross. He did the offering on our behalf. Now, we offer in His name. We offer through Him. So we are the spiritual house, the holy priesthood, if we hold fast to the confidence of our confession. 
That's, uh, that's critical in Hebrews. What are our sacrifices? Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Here's a clue. It's not goats. <laughs> I noticed nobody brought a goat this morning. Thank you for that. They smell. Not only do they smell, but then you kill them and the blood gets everywhere. You've got to capture the blood in a bowl. No. We, uh, we offer up sacrifices before the Father at an altar that they don't even know about, at a table they don't have any right to eat at. So it says in Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I told you praise and, and thanksgiving are synonyms. There it is. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is our worship before the Father, doing good and sharing. Remember, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Did you think that was limited to salvation only? So much more than just getting saved. Yes, getting saved, coming to the Father through Christ, but more than that, once you are saved, coming to the Father through Christ in your priestly ministry, coming to the Father through Christ in prayer, coming to the Father through Christ in your priestly liturgical service. John 4, 23, for such the Father seeks. Let's look at John 4. Because this is the woman at the well. And she was a Samaritan woman and she really, really, really wanted to think that Mount Gerizim was the lucky mountain. That that was the, the place to come to God. But the Jews kept saying that Jerusalem was the lucky mountain. And so now she's face to face with Jesus and she wants to know which one of these mountains is how we get to God. And he answers her, uh, it's, uh, the Samaritans had ripped off the Jewish Pentateuch and Jerusalem is Mount Zion and salvation is from the Jews. However, he goes on to say, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ take us to God the Father because we worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's Jesus Christ. And so through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, we stand before God the Father in our priestly ministry. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. True worshipers. And such the Father seeks. Such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God the Father was looking forward to the church age in such an amazing way. In a way that worshipers would come before Him in substance, not just in shadows. Not just a representative like a high priest representing the people. He wanted an entire redeemed people to stand before him in spirit and in truth. And that's what he has in the church age. It's a glorious thing. So now think about it. We'll have to close here. But think about it. The, um, the priestly service that we offer, we're going to come back to this next week and see the, the dispensation of the church worship is heavenly priestly service. Our church worship is not the musical style it's not the body position of, of standing, sitting, hands raised, hands down, eyes open, eyes closed. It's not a worship style. Worship is a lifestyle. It's conducting our, it's walking as living sacrifices before the Father. So we'll deal with that next week. But, but think about it. When you're doing good and sharing, when you're serving one another, you're serving the Lord. So uh, you, know, you give somebody a ride home from church. That blesses them, but you're serving the Lord. You know, an unbeliever could drive an Uber and take somebody home, but a believer in Jesus Christ under the filling of the Holy Spirit serves the Lord as a priestly sacrifice. So think about it in those terms. If you're volunteering in the nursery, think about it in those terms. Before you change your next diaper, think about it in those terms. Say, Father, this is a priestly service before you. This is a sweet-smelling savor before you as I change this diaper in a liturgical offering before you. <laughs> Maybe your diaper's a 73-year-old man. All right, it's a priestly service before the Lord. And so offer it up as a sweet-smelling savor. Offer it up as a, as a uh, priestly ministry. Say, Father, I'm, I'm made righteous. I'm within the veil. I'm offering up this incense before your throne and make it a priestly ministry before you do anything in the body of Christ. So Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this day, for the faithfulness of your word. How convicting it is, Father, when we grumble and don't like our work assignments. And yet, Father, it's a priestly ministry. And if we defile our temples, Father, 
How is that not Nadab and Abihu with strange fire standing in the Holy of Holies and, and, um, and complaining, grumbling? So Father, I pray that uh, in these convicting messages that we would respond, that we would grow, that uh, Father, we would shine forth as evidence of your completed work in Christ. And Father, I pray for the simplicity of the gospel, for anybody sitting here today without Christ. If there's somebody uh, maybe listening on the website and is hearing this for the first time, that thinks that if they can be a good person, they're going to die and go to heaven. But there's human good people that die and go to hell every day. That our sin, the wages of our sin is death. We need our sin removed by faith in Christ. And Jesus is the only way and truth and life. I pray that we would understand it right here, right now, right where we're sitting, Father. We don't have to walk an aisle or get baptized. We can sit here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and place our faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. We are the sinners. It's as simple as that. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have. I thank you for this holiday weekend. George Washington was our first president. He he decreed a day of national thanksgiving where we as a nation, we as a people, the American people can acknowledge the creator God of the universe as our provider. And much of that is lost in our day and age, but I thank you that some remains. So we thank you for our freedom. We thank you for the blessings of uh, liberty that uh, we're meeting in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are and where we are. Thank you, Father, that we can name the name of Christ in a public way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with a closing hymn.